Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter number three, and then let's go ahead and stand to our feet out of reverence for the reading of God's word, Philippians chapter number three, I'll begin reading in verse number eight, Philippians chapter three, verse number eight. I love the sound of Bible pages turning. If I listen to them turning too long, I get a little nervous, though. Philippians chapter 3, verse number 8. And the Bible says, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know Him, and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings, being made conformable unto His death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect. But I follow after, if that I may, appreh may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus." Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if anything, and if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereunto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, not let us mind the same thing. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example." Father, I pray that you would help us to understand your word. And Father, as we look towards this portion of it, Lord, I pray that we would, that we would clearly grasp every aspect of your teaching. And Lord, I now ask that you would empty me of myself. Father, I pray that you fill me with your spirit. Lord, that there'd be nothing left but you at the end of this. And Lord, I pray that you would help us. Lord, I ask that you would instruct us. Father, I pray that you would deliver us from the chains of our past, from our preconceived notions about our future. And Lord, that we would be surrendered to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This evening, I would like to preach a message entitled, Letting Go and Reaching Forth. Letting go and reaching forth. My primary focus is what we read in verse number 13. For the Bible tells us, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before I have found in my life, and I would imagine that you have discovered for yourself, that it is almost, if not altogether, impossible to reach forward if you're still 
holding on to the past. Now, I don't know if this is true or not, but one time someone was trying to teach me how to capture a raccoon. Don't ask why they were trying to teach me how to catch a raccoon, although I did once with my father kill a small family of raccoons by starting a bulldozer once, and it was a terrible thing. They were caught in the engine, and there were lots of blood-curdling noises, and we thought a belt was slipping. Well, it was. It was slipping on this poor little creature. But he has now gone home to glory and is in a much better place. So we don't have to worry about that poor little fellow. Uh, But I had learned, or at least someone had told me, that with the raccoon, that they are attracted to shiny objects. And that if you were to take a nail and polish it and and put some kind of attractant, like a peanut butter or something like that on that nail, that that raccoon would grab hold of it, would lick and gnaw on that peanut butter, and then if you were to, to scare that raccoon, whatever, then it wouldn't let go of the nail. Now, I personally don't believe this, so if there's any other raccoon hunters out there, they say it's true. Elmer says this is a possibility. This could be true. I want to test it. I want to see it. But I thought, that's ridiculous. Does that raccoon not have the mental capacities to realize that his life is more valuable than that shiny nail? Did he not consider the fact that the open end of the 12 gauge was far more dangerous to him and that he should release that shiny object and scurry happily into the forest with his family. But I guess they're not that smart. And here we are. And we would say that we would never be so foolish as to hold on to some little insignificant shiny nail when threatened with our life. And this might seem like an absolutely ridiculous illustration, but I think it, it makes the point of verse number 13 extremely well. Oftentimes when we focus on verse number 13, we will look at the opening portion and we will see this charge of the apostle. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. And we, we are reminded that, that he still has work to do and, and that there is a job to be done. And we look to the close of verse number 13. And he says in, in, in verse number 13, he says at the close of it that he is reaching forth unto those things which are before. And we look at that verse and, and those final words of verse 13, they echo in our, in our mind and our heart and they resonate with us. They, they motivate us to move forward, realizing that there is a great prize to be won. And we rush into verse number 14 with great hope and expectation. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I mean, I even like the way that that's phrased, I press toward the mark. Which mark? For the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And there is this idea. There is this thought, this 
picture in front of me like a sprinter running as fast as he can. And as his feet beat against the pavement, he's leaning forward so far that his feet are not swift enough. He'll fall forward on his face and he's giving it his all. And there he breaks the ribbon with his chest and tumbles forward, having given his all. And I thought, yeah, that's how I want to do it. And here we are. And we have missed and looked over a significant truth in this text. And we have left verse 13 behind, still wafting in the dust. And we haven't collected the first step in pursuing God's future for our lives. Because the first step is letting go of the past. And I read these words that this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. And how is it that that little conjunction and, and, and reaching forth that we put, have put all of our emphasis on the reaching forth and none of our emphasis on the forgetting those things which are behind. For I have spent so much time counseling with others and my wife has spent so much time counseling me to forget some things that happen that have such a power over us. Those regrettable things in the past which chain us down and hold us like captives from pursuing the vision of God in the future. Those indiscretions, those mistakes, or those injustices that are done to us that at the name of some other man or at the name of some other person, we remember the grievous things that were done to us and we get drugged back to the past and we find that in that space, it's like a prison. And when the door closes on our past, it is almost impossible to reach beyond beyond the bars of that confinement. And yet how does Paul instruct us? By the power of the Holy Ghost, he does not just say reaching forth. He says forgetting those things which are behind. There are some things that we've got to learn to let go. Paul was a beautiful example of this. If anyone had a reason to be chained to the difficulty of his past, it was Paul. I won't rehearse his entire life here tonight, but you know quite well as a persecutor of the Christians, as one who in terms of his merits and in the work that he had done, had no right to stand before a holy God, let alone do the work of God. And now to think that even the writing of, the, of a number of the books in the New Testament are entrusted to this apostle, you've got to understand that he is a living example of, 
of this truth. Not just this truth of pressing toward that mark. Because one thing we know about Paul is he pressed toward that mark. He was ready to go, whether it be from Jerusalem to Antioch, Antioch to Lystra, Lystra to Derby, Derby to Cyprus, Cyprus to Macedonia, whether it was Philippi or Thessalonica or Galatia or Rome. It didn't matter if his, if his audience was greeting him with bricks and stones or with welcoming hugs and holy kisses. He was ready to press toward that mark. But sometimes what we forget is that he was also ready and able to let go of his past and realize that no one had the right, not he himself, not his family members, not his old religious buddies, not anyone that knew him from the past had the right before God to come before him and accuse him based on his past. I think that might have been what was going through his mind when Romans chapter 8 was flowing out of his pen. When he says, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? What does that mean? What that means is that you can't bring up my past and no one needs to be bringing up your past, yourself included, because all of that is under the blood of Jesus Christ and no one needs to be chained or confined by it. And here he is. He's saying, we can't just press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling if we don't also forget those things which are behind. If I were to be able to choose one Old Testament example to lay parallel beside the life of the Apostle Paul that we could examine tonight, I'd like to examine one man. His name is Joseph. Joseph had all the reason to be upset about his past, but for a different reason than the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, all of his indiscretions, all of his sin, all of his attack against the Lord Jesus Christ was his own doing. It was his own effort. It was by his own hands. But there's another kind of past that believers are so frequently chained down to. And it's the past in which others have attacked you. Others have committed injustice against you. Others have lied about you. Others have tarnished your name. And you read that verse in the Old Testament that a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. And all you can think is that this person, they have spoiled my name. And there is Joseph. Just rehearse his story quickly. Joseph, uh, the one of, of 12 brothers who were intensely jealous of him. And uh, they decided that they were going to get rid of their younger brother. You remember the brother with the coat of many colors. Well, that's Joseph. And there he is out there in the field. And his brothers capture him and throw him in a pit. They, they end up selling him into slavery. And he enters into Potiphar's house and serves as a, as a servant there in that way. And, and rises in stature in that, in that place as a servant. But yet Potiphar's wife makes false accusation against him. And now he ends up in the prison. 
There he is, not because of his own indiscretion, but really because he was trying to do the right thing. And yet even in doing the right thing, now he has to bear this scar in his past. Now, like tally marks across his back are the scars of the betrayal of his brothers that he could carry with him with bitterness and anger. And now the second tally mark of brutality, that scar of imprisonment, the lies that were told against him by Potiphar's wife. And you must understand that these were all scars from his past that he was going to have to learn to leave behind. And now he finds himself there in a prison. And it's been two years since he interpreted the dream of the baker and the the dream of the chief butler. And they promised that they would tell Pharaoh about him. And it's been two whole years and he hasn't heard a thing. And now a third scar is being etched into his back like a tally mark of oppression, a tally mark of injustice, a tally mark of pain, the scar of abandonment. And the amazing thing to me about Joseph is that he never carried his past with him in bitterness. Never. As he's serving in Potiphar's house, he's not bemoaning the the betrayal of his brothers. He's serving in the capacity that God has given him. While he is in prison, he doesn't find himself bemoaning the lies that were told about him. And now that his name has been tarnished, thinking that he'll never get out. But he always sets his eyes of hope forward, thinking that the Lord is able to deliver him from this place. And that he's not going to be defined by his past, but he's going to be used of God in the future and he still had the vision of those dreams which kept him awake at night his heart not discouraged but encouraged because he decided that he was going to forget his past and move towards his future we say well Pastor John what evidence is, is there that he let go of his past how do you know he didn't carry all that bitterness with him all the time I'll tell you why Two things, and you're welcome to turn there if you like, or you can listen intently. But here at the very close of his life, in Genesis chapter number 50, this is what you read about his life. In Genesis chapter 50, it says in verse 22 that Joseph dwelt in Egypt. He and his father's house. And Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. Ephraim, that's his um, second son, And the children of Maker, the son of Manasseh, that's his first son, were brought up upon Joseph's knees. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I die, and God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land unto the land which he sware to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And as I'm entering into the presence of that intimate moment, as Joseph realizes that he is about to die, and his children, his grandchildren are gathered around, and I'm listening to what he's saying, and I hear these words that, yes, he knows that death is looming. And what are his final words to them? He says, God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land. And what is he saying? You're not going to be bound by your present or your past, but God has a future for you. He then goes on and realizes that there is even a future for him. So, Pastor Jared, didn't you just say that he's about to die? Yes, I did. Was God going to raise him up from the dead? Nope. But he knows he's got a future for him. 
And here's what he says in verse 25 of Genesis 50. And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel saying, God will surely visit you. Do you hear his confidence there? And ye shall carry up my bones from hence. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. And they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. But I love the fact that the Bible tells us that Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel. And it wasn't Joseph that was wondering whether or not they would find themselves in the promised land. For that oath was not one that bound Joseph because he was going to be dead. It was one that bound his children because he was 100 percent confident that it would not be his past, it would not be his death, it would not be the present circumstance that he was in that was going to, that was going to uh, finalize his life, but instead it would be the promise that God had something more to come. Or if I could say it the way that Paul did, he was still, even in his death, pressing towards the mark of the prize of the high calling in Christ Jesus because God had promised that he was going to bring him home. But he had to let go of his past. So, Pastor Jared, I need some more evidence that Joseph let go of his past. I'm glad you asked. I've always found this very interesting That when Joseph finally makes it there to Egypt, and here he is with all the power that he has. He's the right-hand man to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, the commander of one of the largest armies, if not the largest army on the earth at that time. And now Joseph is in a place where if he wanted revenge, he could have it. Do you realize that from this position, most likely he could influence Pharaoh to starve out Potiphar, Potiphar's wife and his family. He could perhaps even lay claim by getting Pharaoh's ear and, and tell Pharaoh the truth of what was done to him by Potiphar's family. He wouldn't even have to make up a lie. And it could be that in this moment, Joseph could grab vengeance in one hand against Potiphar and his wife and take it and exact it upon them at that moment but he doesn't. Not only does he have power if he wanted to take vengeance on Potiphar and his wife and his lands there, but oh, who is this little family over there in Canaan land? Oh, he could have sent a company of assassins straight out of Pharaoh's army down to that land there in Canaan, spared his father because his father loved him and brought his father to Egypt and massacred his brothers, but he didn't. And as you know the rest of the story, we're here on a Wednesday night. I imagine you know that his brothers eventually show up in Egypt. And he does the exact opposite. He cares for them. But one of the biggest indications that all this is a result of him letting go of the past is when he has his first son. His first son is this little baby boy named Manasseh. And here Joseph is with his, his beautiful wife. And there they are in the, they had a home birth. Uh, there they are in the, in the house. Sprinkling some essential oils around. There's this little baby boy. And he looks down into the face of that, that precious, precious little child. And, and, and he's looking to name this baby. 
Now, naming all of our children was a big deal in our home. It was Emily's job to come up with all the names, and it was my job to say no to all but one of them. <laughs> and I did my job really well. I did my job so well, I said no to all of Ava's middle names, and Emily just had to pick one. And there they are, going through all of these names. What should we name the baby? What should we name the baby? And this is the firstborn baby. So this is, this is the one. This is the, in Hebrew custom, the inheritor. This is the one that's going to carry the name and the blessing and all of those things. What do we name this baby? And in the significance of that moment, Joseph looks down into the eyes of that precious little baby boy. And he says, Manasseh. And in Genesis 41, verse 51, the Bible says that Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For God said he hath made me forget my toil and all my father's house. Manasseh, that name literally means, if you were to just say it in Hebrew, the name literally means causing to forget. When that little boy came into his hands, he took his hands and he let go of everything else. He said, I'm not carrying my bitterness anymore. I'm not carrying my pain. I'm not going to try to be vengeful or revengeful because that belongs to the Lord anyway. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. And Joseph turns all that over to God and he says, Manasseh, I'm going to forget about it all. And here it is, Joseph, leaning forward. And here is the glorious truth. I love the parallels in the Bible. The Bible is so consistent. What you find in picture in the Old Testament, you you also find in doctrine, in teaching in the New Testament. What is the teaching of Ephesians chapter number three? Is that there must be a letting go of the past and a pressing toward the future. You know what Joseph named his second son? Ephraim. <gasps> You're like, what's that mean? Let me help you. Ephraim. The second born of Joseph, he looks into that baby's face. He says, your name will be Ephraim. Ephraim literally means double fruit. In fact, Genesis 41 verse number 52 says this, and the name of the second called he Ephraim, for God hath caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. This is what Joseph is saying. Joseph is saying, I am letting go of some things of the past. I'm letting them go. I'm letting go of the bitterness. I'm letting go of the vengeful spirit. I'm letting go of my anger. I'm not forgetting the fact that there was affliction, by the way. He does say that he will be fruitful in the land of my affliction. He didn't forget the fact that he was still not in the place where God really wanted him in the promised land. So when he's letting go of these things, he's letting go of the bitterness. He's letting go of the anger. He's letting go of the frustration. He's letting go of, of all of those questions of why, Lord, didn't you do that? And why, Lord, didn't you do this? He's letting go. He's saying, Manasseh. And he's pressing forward, Ephraim. I'm looking for the blessing that you have for you, for me, Lord. I'm looking for that prize of the high calling. I am pursuing the next thing, and I'm not going to be stuck in the past. And he has this reaction of letting go 
and reaching forth. And I'm going to give these super quick. The things that I see both in Paul's life and in Joseph's life. I see betrayal. But wasn't Joseph betrayed by those that were the closest to him, his brothers, the ones that, that, that should have been there to defend him and protect him, but yet the ones that he was closest to are the same ones that raised the knife and betrayed him. The Apostle Paul even in this text, in Philippians chapter number 3, he talks about his zeal. He says in verse number 6, touching righteousness, which is in the law, he's blameless. In verse number 5, it says that he was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, a tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee. Let me tell you something about Pharisees. Let me tell you something about the tribe of Benjamin. Let me tell you something about the stock of Israel. As if they are a tight-knit bunch. You're not a Pharisee independently. You're a Pharisee collectively. It's a group, not an individual identity. A tribe of Benjamin, that's a group, not an individual identity. The stock of Israel, that's a group, not an individual identity. And where were his tribe members, the tribe of Benjamin? Where were his fellow Pharisees that he was so close to? And where were the rest of the stock of Israel while he was going out on all these missionary journeys? They were the ones that were fighting him the most. One thing I'll tell you about Joseph and also about Paul is that they were betrayed and they realized they had to let that stuff go. They had to let it go if they were going to press for it. They had every justification to be bitter. And you could come to me tonight and say, well, Pastor Jared, you just don't understand how bad I've been hurt by those who are supposed to love me. I might not ever understand, but I'd say Joseph did. I say Paul did. I say the Holy Spirit of God understands and knows. Was it not Jesus Christ who entered into that garden the night that he was going to be betrayed? And as he agonized in prayer, here comes Judas through the crowd. And the Bible says in Matthew 26, Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, the same as he hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. None of the disciples thought about anything about this because I imagine it was very frequent that, that Judas would come and call him Master and hug him and, and kiss his cheek. This was normal behavior for Judas. In fact, Judas was so comfortable kissing the face of Jesus that it was nothing for him to even suggest that to the guards as a way to identify the one whom he's going to betray because he had become so accustomed to being close to Jesus. Talk about betrayal. What's interesting to me are the words of Jesus as he responds, knowing all things, Jesus said unto him, friend, has it ever crossed your mind that when Jesus received the kiss of Judas, the very next words out of Jesus' mouth were, Friend? Friend? How many of you call a friend that have betrayed you? 
How many of you called friend for less than 30 pieces of silver have sold you out and have made your life miserable and have smeared your name and have taken part in, in bringing um, accusations against you that are untrue just like they did to Jesus? And here we have another member of this community of those who needed to let things go. They were betrayed. Another thing that I see is they were slandered against. They were lied against. I imagine that there are some here tonight that there have been so many lies told about you that it would almost be impossible to go back and correct them all. And you carry that with you. You carry that with you. Sometimes you'll go into a room and there'll be a number of people there. And you know that there's been liars in their ears telling things about you. And you go into that room with awkward trepidation, not really sure what to say, just because you are so afraid of what everybody else thinks because of the lies that have been told about you. So, Pastor Jared, that doesn't happen. Yes, it does. And it's probably happened to just about everybody in here. And if it hasn't, I hope it never does. <laughs> But that was the case with Joseph. That was the case with Paul. That was the case with Jesus. The slanderers will always come. And you can choose to hold on to that bitterness. And you can try to fight against every lie that's ever been told against you. And every, every truth that's been distorted to make you look like some kind of monster. Or, or make it look like you're in sin. Or make it look like, like you've done wrong. Or that you're out of the will of God. And I've been telling you, you can try to hold on to that and fight against that and, and pray vindication against all those people and try to get on Facebook and, and correct the story and try to make phone calls. But I'm telling you, at some point, you've got to let it go. You have to let it go. You have to resign it to the past and give it to God and cast your care upon him and realize that God knows the truth and he cares for you and he will stand for you in that day of judgment. And in the meantime, just let it go. Just let it go. And if you don't, it will haunt you and hunt you every day of your life. So how do I let it go? You got to forgive. Oh, I know it's hard. I know it's hard because it's hard for me too. You think I stand up here like a perfect man who doesn't struggle with these same things? No, let me tell you what the Word of God says. There hath no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. Let me tell you, so many a times what I do is I get alone with God because I am in desperate need of help and instruction and I am in desperate shape and I'm in danger of doing things my own way and I just try to seek the Lord and then what he gives me I come up and I stand behind this pulpit and I just try to tell you what he's told me and sometimes he comes up to my shoulder and he taps and he says you need to let go of that again you picked it up that doesn't belong to you anymore I thought you casted that upon me just let it go. We need to let go. They were betrayed, they were slandered, and they were abandoned. And I, I don't know what, what forest of bitterness is growing in your heart as a result 
of the past. And I know it's, it's not healthy to just, well, let's just pretend like it never happened. No, let's not pretend like it never happened. Let's deal with it based on the word of God by finding a place of forgiveness, by casting all of that into the control and care of the Lord and then pressing toward the next mark of the prize of his high calling. But if we're going to press toward that mark, there are some things that first we need to let go of.